I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, novelist Eun Lee explores how writing and stories have given her strength to navigate life's toughest challenges. A story or a book, when the work is really good, you do distill your life into that piece of writing. Again, no writing is perfect. There's always some flaws or some imperfections, but it is as close to what I can get from life. And reflections on impermanence in gardening. You can spend all your energy holding a child down, but the child may not put the roots down. That's exactly what happens in the garden. You can do all you can, but they have their own lives. You have to accept at some point you're not in control. Grief, loss, and the beauty of storytelling with author Eun Lee. That's coming up on Life Examined. There might be no better way to grapple with the complexities of life than by reading a good book. And as we've discussed so often in this program, grief, suffering, and loss are complicated but universally recurring themes. When we struggle to deal with our own raw emotions, a simple piece of prose, a poem, or a lyric to a song provides a vessel to pour our sorrow. Many of you may remember the conversation I had with the poet Ross Gay, who spoke so vividly about the death of his father and how he struggled with that loss. With that in mind, it may be a surprise to hear a slightly different perspective from someone who's chosen to reframe the most difficult moments in her life with an unexpected lightness and humor. My guest Eun Lee looks to the garden and gardening as both a sanctuary and a metaphor for life. It's a place, Lee says, where, quote, nothing works perfectly. In her latest collection of stories called Wednesday's Child, writer Eun Lee explores the relationship between parents and their children, including mothers like her who've lost a child. Eun Lee is a creative writing professor at Princeton University, and she joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I want to start with, with where you grew up, which is in China, in a very, very different era. And, um, and, and I, I, I know that language and speaking and the ability to communicate was something you, you, had, a, you had a real gift for. But maybe it didn't always quite feel like the most authentic way to use the gift. There's a wonderful story about um, how this all comes together. Would you would you tell us that? Yes, you know, I as you said, I grew up in China in the nineteen seven. I was born in nineteen seventies. You know, grew up eighties, and it was a different era. And when we grew up, we. I mean, we were trained to, for instance, to write about patriotic articles, you know, give patriotic speeches. I turn out to really have, as you said, I turn out to have a good talent for writing propaganda. And in high school, I won a propaganda, sort of propaganda speech contest. And I moved my audience to tears. I think I nearly moved myself to tears into So, but I did not like that because I knew I was not talking about my real feelings. It was all very pretty words. So that actually, when you were in the, imagine you're 18, 17, 18, you want to be genuine. You want to be true to yourself. And what I did was exactly the opposite. So I got very upset. But it's also interesting, right? When you're 17 and 18, you also want to be liked and loved. And I'd imagine for someone that age, there's also this maybe a feeling of euphoria that one can experience when suddenly you find what you're good at and you get this amazing public response. Yes, amazing and upsetting, I mm. think. I would say both. And of course, I reckon, I, I, I would say I, I was a precocious child. So I recognized the irony in that situation. And so I decided not to write in Chinese because it was not the language. I would really feel comfortable with, and I would not call that language my my language. So I stopped writing those things. Hmm. It's interesting, right? To in a sense give up, give up your mother tongue, give up the language you grew up with, almost um, symbolically because of mm-hmm. what it began to just represent in your life. Yes, I. You know, at at one point I wrote, I made a very sort of serious statement I thought I said it's a kind of suicide when you when you severed yourself from your mother tongue and it is I think in my case it was done out of 
a wish to recreate my mind in another language. It's just it's a fascinating part of of who you are, and I know that eventually you know you would come to the United States. And if I have this right, we're studying medicine initially. Oh, I was going to get a, a yes. I was just studying immunology. <laughs> right, right. At the and I, what's so interesting about your story is I you were at the University of Iowa, and which also happens to have the best creative writing program in the country as well, or one of the best. And so I, I just love, there's a, there's a very interesting, I don't know, set of I, uncanny circumstances there, I guess. Right. I always say serendipity plays an important part in my life. You know, I didn't go there to become a writer. I went there to do something else, and I became a writer in Iowa City. Is there anything to be said about coming to... A language, English, which would have been a, you know your second language, is almost um, a blank slate from which you can grow upon, or you can explore the language in new ways. Does that does that seem true, or like? But I, you write literary fiction. This is not just kind of you know throw words on the page and have it make sense. I mean, that there is right. real artistry here. So I'm curious about that process. Very much true. I think what you just said. I I always think, you know. When you write in a second language, you have your advantage, you have your disadvantage. So my disadvantage is, is I did not grow up with English. So I did not have, I do not have that intimacy you have with a native language, right? When you when you grew up in a language, the language was spoken around you before you were even starting to learn anything. So there was some kind of link there. And as you said, I came in as a blank slate. Yeah. I did not have that. But I think that the advantage was I came into the language as an adult and my entirely thoughts were reformed or formed or reformed in this new language. So I put a lot of pressure in how I use English. I, I examine every single word I put down on the page. I use dictionaries all the time. So so I do think, you know, in my case, I put a lot of pressure on the language. Mm. Do you find that that English is, is a good literary language? Does this language do something well that other languages don't do well? That's a good question that I don't think I'm qualified to answer. I mean, I, I read a little French. I'm sure French is also a very good language yeah. for lit. I mean, my understanding is Russian can be very beautiful. For myself, I think English is a better language than Chinese for me to write creatively. Mm-hmm. Well, since you have become a writer, you've been you've been really prolific in in the amount that you've been able to write, and and I'd love to explore this theme of of grief together because mm-hmm. this is this is one that is that is very front and center in in your mm-hmm. new collection. But I think that I my sense is that grief is a theme that runs through literature kind of immemorial. It's it's one that maybe we could think of as one of the central themes of literature. Do you think that's true? Oh, yes, yes. You know, sometimes I worry about the word grief because we use that word all the time, right? Sometimes, you know, we, we want to examine the word. But I, I agree with you. I think part of the reason it's this, this is, is a universal theme, you know, forever and ever is the process of living is sort of a process of losing things. Right, you know, there there's loss all the time happening to everyone, to people all the time, and coming with that loss is, you know, feeling. And so, I do think literature has always been exploring these themes. I, you know, it's not me, it's not my work at this moment, but I think that's one thing that literature does well is to examine losses in life. Mm. And yeah, you have written openly about this, and it's it's you know it's obviously a very touching subject. But for you, in in the last number of years, grief has obviously been front and center because you lost a a child, your son mm-hmm. Vincent. Yes. And yes. I I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit about him and your relationship together, and what what this process has been like for you. I know hard to put into you know a few amount of words in an interview but i'd love to just create a space for that 
Right. You know, I, 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 as you said, I write openly about this loss, which is, you know, people tell me, and I do agree with it, it's one of the profoundest losses you can experience in life, right? The losing of a child. And, and you know, Vincent died when he was 16 of suicide. And that has, in the past, as you said, in the past six years, especially in my new collection, which is called Wednesday's Child, you know, taking from that nursery rhyme, Wednesday's Child, was is full of wool. So, so it is it is a collection, and also my recent few books. My recent, I would say, f- five maybe four books. Grief is at the center, and loss is at the center. But I don't want it just to be about loss. And I think there are different, you know, facade of that that scenario. And and I just write. I, I suppose I write to explore the possibilities coming with that subject. Mm. And if I might ask, how how was it for you to experience the kind of loss that you did with Vincent? I mean, this is what you do hear from people that the loss of a child is one of of such uh, such magnitude. And mm-hmm. what what how, how was that for you? How I mean, it's certainly it's it's. A big loss. You know, it's interesting. Someone asked me the other day, said, have you made peace with your loss? I find that question very strange. Mm. I said, no, I don't make peace with this loss, right? It's, it, I, I think, I think, I, I think there's a way to use language. There are certain language, have you made peace with your loss or have you recovered from your loss? Those things I, I, those language or those words, I think, always indicate sort of a closure, right? Mm. An end point to that feeling. Yeah. And my thinking is, no, this loss will always be there. This wound will not heal, but that is okay. That is my situation. I, you know, in that in the in the recent New Yorker piece about the garden, I said, you know, after this loss, it's just your life is moved to a different landscape you you start to live in a new landscape rather than saying going back to normal i think there's no going back there's no there's no normal anymore mm. if that makes sense oh it does make sense and i think that you know and I, i've talked about this as i've i've done a lot of work in in grief psychology and grief counseling mm-hmm. and working at hospice centers and that you know i think when when somebody that close to you dies the the architecture of your life changes almost dramatically in that way, right? And I think yes. that, but you're still in some form of architecture. You're still, you're still existing, but albeit the, the ties and the energy and, and the way you conduct oneself throughout a day are, are very different. And it's an incredible adjustment. And I think I hear that in the way you're talking about it too. Yes. You're absolutely right. You know, it's interesting you use the word architect, right? It's architecture. It's a space, mm. right? You know, we're thinking when you experience something so dramatic, the space has changed. No, the space is still there, the physical space of life and the temporal space of it. You still have to go through your days from morning till night. So I, I do think you're right. I think it's just reforming or so sort of recreating that space around you after a traumatic event, but you still have to live in that space, I think. Mm. Yes, yes. We both referenced the fact that, you know, you, you have this, I think, a very beautiful piece on, on gardening and grief. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think this is a very kind of interesting and profound subject. Another one of our guests, Ross Gay, he, he mm. explored this with me some as well. But I, I'd love to hear from you about what why you think there's an interesting connection there, or at least how did it play out in your life? Right. You know, I, I think I, I have written about this too. In, as you said, when something really big happens, I think the effect is it feels like time has stopped. You know, after a tremendous loss you don't know how to go through your day so you're living in a very still moment as though today and tomorrow and the day after tomorrow they're all the same day 
But for the garden, it is not the same day. I have noticed, you know, I've been gardening for five, six years since Vincent's death. Because every day is a different day, and the season changes, weather changes, all these things. You know, I think the garden is a good sort of reminder that actually time moves, even though our lives stand still. There's a way time moves forward, and I always think, you know, I think for people who have experienced deep mourning. Or depression. It's always that new relationship with time, the uneasy relationship with time. I think gardening for me, as you said, you know, it it's it's a way to sort of to have a new relationship with time.、Mm. And and garden, really, nothing is perfect. No, nothing works well perfectly in the garden. You know, you, you can love a plant; the plant will still die, or, or you can water the plant, but something happens. You know, animals have a lot of anim- wild animals, bugs, worms. There's an impermanent element in the garden that is, you know, impermanent elements of life.、Mm. But you can still live with that impermanency, and I think that's one thing that's really beautiful with a gardening、yeah. project. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot there I want to explore, but the, one of the first things you said was just how that oftentimes our own lives can feel like what is one day? It's just、mm-hmm. like the other day, and I'm I'm maybe a little younger. You know, I'm just about to be forty, and I believe Ooh, maybe no, you're, you're very young. Okay, well, you're maybe ten <laughs> or fifteen years older than me. Say, but let's、um, let's call yeah, ourselves. I'm ten years old. I'm ten、okay. years older. Yes.、Okay. Well, let's call ourselves middle agers together. Oh, just, wow. Just just for now. Okay, here we are.、Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Okay, you're you're overestimate your stage. Sure. Your maybe, that's right. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit.、Yeah. But let's. But I but I don't know about you. There, I I feel like even in my phase of Life. There are some days I go to bed and I think, "Wow, what?" Like, I, I have felt like I have been alive for a while now, and、oh. days seem to go faster. And sometimes I'm not sure exactly what I have done with them,、mm-hmm. or that I just kind of continue to live further on and on. And you know, it's n- not every day is full of the most beautiful sunshine and、mm-hmm. paintings and art. You know, it, we just、mm-hmm. we we keep going. You know, and、right. I'm not trying to be depressive in saying that, but I think it's a function of、mm-hmm. getting a little bit older. And so, I, what you said to me about the fact that there's a certain vitality and change in a garden to me seems to me、uh, to just actually be a very important function. Of something to engage in, and as I say this, I feel that maybe art and writing is very similar too.、Mm-hmm. There's a mysteriousness in both of them, maybe. Yes, you know, I, I think exactly right. You know, part of the reason I think time, when we are older, I wonder. You know, when we are older, time seems to be on an autopilot, yes, right?、Yeah. Without our knowing it, it's it's you know Saturday again. But I think there there are ways to. Sort of to stop time for a moment. For instance, in the spring, this past spring, when my garden was really doing well, I I do a very I would do a very small thing as in the morning I would go out, sort of to greet each individual flower, instead of just greeting the whole garden、mm. because each flower looks different. The the coloring is a little different. The smell the smell the scents. The angle when the sunlight, you know, filters in through the tree, there are a lot of variation of the flowers. So I think to just to stop time or to to make that time feel textured, I would spend you know no more than five minutes every morning to spend some time with the flowers, and that to me is a good way to make sure time is both not on autopilot, right,、mm. but it's also meaningful. Yes, and and what you said too about understanding the impermanence of a garden,、mm-hmm. right? That that there are things happening out there that are just so wildly out of our control, whether it's a sudden frost or or an animal that sneaks in, and that you know all of these things are just so full in a sense of life metaphors, aren't they? When you begin to think about what is in our control and what is out of our control, which I think has so much to do with understanding life and loss, right? Yes, yes. I, I, I think, you know, this 
I'm sure they have some term in psychology called radical acceptance. I think. Yes, it's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think for myself, my understanding, I don't know if I am that radical, but my understanding is I accept everything. And I accept very few things in life are in my control. Most of the things, you know, whether it's people or the garden or the weather, they're not in my control. I just have to make do with what I have at the moment. Mm. There's a term you use, and I wonder if it factors into this conversation, because it, it, I believe it was one of the, the last sentences or maybe even words of your piece in The New Yorker, and I've heard it in other... Oh, yes. Which is, a, which is you think oftentimes of these things as placeholders, a placeholder. Yes. And, and I, can, you, can you talk to me about what, what, what you mean by that and how it functions both maybe in a garden or in writing as well? Right, right. I, I'm so glad you picked up that word because I think placeholder might be maybe the most important word for me. And, you know, in my new book, I dedicated to my best friend also saying the book is a placeholder. And in the New Yorker piece, I ended with that word placeholder. I said, you know, a flower, like a line, like a, like a thought, like a book, it's all placeholder. And I think, you know, I, I want to go back to what you said, you know, anytime, whether you experience loss or anything, your life still has an architecture, right? Mm. The, the, the shape, the space. And that shape, I think you can, you can, glare or you can stare into the emptiness or into deepest warning, the darkest, you know, thoughts. But you actually, that I think sometimes like we are struggling is because we haven't found a placeholder for that dark thought or for, for that bleak time. So writing as gardening, I think, is my way of finding a placeholder for the days. You know, even in the most difficult moment, I mean, reading too, I would say, yes, if I read for an hour or if I write for an hour, I have given that hour a shape, I, a placeholder there to hold up the space. So that's how I look at it. And of course, you know, a garden is, a, you know, a garden is like a novel. It takes so much work, nothing mm. works. And then you come back and work again. It's. A garden as writing is a very effective placeholder of life. Mm. I, I love the way you've, you've framed that. And, you know, and in psychology, we often say how important it is to externalize thoughts or ah. emotions, right? So that, right. Or that, that emotions or thoughts or grief, they need to go somewhere. And we're least happy when they're kind of stuck, when we feel like they're in us and they're, and they're big and mysterious and powerful, but they need to move in a direction. And I wonder, in a sense, if a, a placeholder, a book or a garden can, can become that, 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 that the language works in both of or in all of those scenarios. Yes, that's a very good way to put it, because, they, you know, I am an in, sort of an internal writer. Most of my work are very internal, but I'm very aware that you cannot live your days entirely in that internal space because then you stopped you know paying attention to the world around you and then you stop you know you start doing a lot of things that are good for you so i do like what you said the externalization is that a word you use yes yes and i think it's it's the garden but it's also the physical movement i think you know one thing i learned is you know, whether you're in a very difficult position or you're in deep mourning, that physical movement, whether you go out to, you know, to rake the leaves or to weed, I, I actually, I love weeding. Sometimes you just, you just get the energy out, right, by weeding. Yes. But I think the physical movement is the most important thing. It's, it, it's again, physical movement is also part of the placeholder of life, right? We can't sit there for 24 hours. We need to walk around the house. We need to go out to the garden. We need to sort of just move ourselves from one point to another, you know, both in time and in space, that physical movement sort of push you forward and i think that is very helpful mm. you know it's funny when you use the word placeholder mm-hmm. and i there was also this word that that came to my mind which is in, in 
maybe this is right or not, but a placeholder can also be maybe an attempt at some form of permanence too, I think in writing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the garden, I think we're talking about it as, as kind of beautifully ephemeral, but I wonder for you when you use the word placeholder in a story, and you know, here we are talking about knowing how little control we have over things, do you feel that writing is maybe the closest we get to permanence or that it's oh. a reminder of, of things that felt real at, at a certain point? Yes, I think I, that I'm, you know, I have not thought about that. I think you're right because between a book and a garden, a garden is more ephemeral, right? right? Everything fades and season changes, everything changes again. A story or, you know, a book, I think it, you know, when, when the work is really good, you, you do distill your life into that piece of writing. Right, it is distill your five years of life into these stories, and you know, again, I I don't I no writing is perfect, right? There's always some flaws or some imperfections there, but it is as close as to what I can get, you know, on the page is as close as I can get to a still distillment from 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 life. I think. Yeah. And if I have it right, this collection that is just out now, I mean, it mm-hmm. was one that was was growing over a number of years. I mean, this this became a kind of a larger placeholder over years for oh, you, yes. didn't it? Yes. So the stories in the in the collection have been written in the past 14 years. So that's a major chunk of my career. Yeah. You know, during those 14 years I published probably seven other books. But these stories as you said, it's it's a big placeholder. I think, you know, I look at these stories as one important moment in my career because I can go back to each story. I don't usually reread my stories, mm. but I do think about them and I can remember the circumstances or the situations when I was working on them. So in a way, I think the book is really a major placeholder of my life in the past 14 years. Mm. And if you were to think about what it what it symbolizes or what it is for you, like what how would you how would you understand this book? You know, say 20 years from now going back to look at it and saying, "Wow, this was this was where my life was during the period of writing this." Like how how would you understand that? Right. I I I think, you know, if I can refer back to the New Yorker piece, mm. There's uh, uh, the Marianne Moore's quote, which I used as the title of the piece. And she said, if we cannot you know, do anything, if not now, later, then later. So, so I think it means you know, if you cannot do anything now, you have to hope for the later. There is a moment you can do that thing. And for me, I think this book, actually, as you said, because it sort of encompassed like 14 years and I think if 20 years down the line I look back at this book and I would say okay you know things have been difficult with my life and yet I have used those difficult moments and I have not been moping and not moping is important Mm. Mm. well because for many and I think I saw this in an interview you've given that grief can be paralyzing. I mean, that 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 for most people, the initial, you know, interaction with it in its most kind of acute moments is one of almost not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I and which is exactly right. It's like a like a huge trauma, right? Mm. You're dazed or you're you're ble- you're bleeding, and then you cannot do anything. But I do think our mind is. You know, I keep talking about resilience, and I do think our minds are very resilient yeah. in the way that you know sometimes they can. I mean, our minds can surprise us, right? So, so I, I do think that resilience is that even though you don't think you can do anything, but yes, you actually can do something, mm. and something very little, like you know, gardening. So you know, just gardening, we're just cutting cutting down some you know, I don't know, trim some roses. Those are very simple activities. But also just write a simple sentence. I, the other thing I like about the placeholder is 
placeholder doesn't have to be perfect, right? If you cannot write a perfect story, write an imperfect story. Put down some sentences, and that moves you along the time. If you're just joining us, my guest is ours, Eeyun Lee, professor of creative writing at Princeton University and author of the new collection of short stories called Wednesday's Child. And a reminder that you can stay connected to the show on our Facebook group or connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian, where you'll find weekly videos and a whole lot more. We'll be back with Eeyun Lee after this short break on KCRW. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard Yun Lee describe her love of language and writing and how she's used both her writing and gardening as placeholders for life's challenges. We continue to explore the themes of grief and resilience as we rejoin the conversation, and I'm curious to get her take on the nature of parenting today, why it seems so challenging. But first, I want to hear why humor is such a vital element in her stories. Let's dive back in. I'm also interested in in the role of humor in this mm. new book, knowing that the stories themselves some might see as quite quite heavy with grief, right. and that right. and that we don't think of humor as naturally arising out of a place of like that. And I, I I'm wondering kind of of how you understand the role of humor um, oh. among these what we think of as kind of heavier dark subjects. Right. Which, yes, that's exactly, which is why, you know, earlier I said sometimes I have a question about the word grief, because etymology, the grief comes from the word burden, right? Aggrieved. You have this burden. But even with the darkest time, with the heaviest burden, we laugh all the time. You know, we would be surprised how much we laugh even during a bleak time. Mm. And humor, I think, is a sort of intrinsic element of this new collection is I do want I do want to sort of live in that moment that I actually think grief is tears, but grief is also laughter. Mm. And there are many shades of you know emotions and feelings and responses to something. I don't want people to think grief is a heavy subject. It's a heavy subject, but there are bright moments. There are laughable moments. Like in the title story, Wednesday's Child, you know, the child already died, but the mother actually remind, remembered the child saying, oh, you know, when you're a child, people treat you like a poodle. Mm. And then the child said, not even standard poodle, but a miniature poodle. And <laughs> I just, I always... Think about that moment, the child in that story. You know, she died, but she made me laugh because she made a very astute observation about how children are treated. Right. <laughs> exactly. Are, are there other kind of moments of this collection or stories that, that, that come to mind as we're talking? Because I know it's hard to bring a listener right. fully into one, but I, I'm just curious if you feel something kind of bubbling in you that, that, yes. that seems to call back to some of the things we're saying. Yeah, so uh, there's, you know, not every single story in this book deals with death. Some of them just are about, you know, other aspects of life. So in the center of the collection, there's a novella called Such Common Life. It's, it's made up three-part story. It's not about death, but it's about an older woman who's, in her late 80s and mm. she's you know almost disabled so she has a chinese caretaker also an older woman in her 60s and i i had a lot of good time writing about those stories because one of them is very close to death the other one is closer than most people to death and yet they fill their days with sort of irrelevant and irreverent conversations about a lot of things mm. And one thing they discussed was the imaginary 
childhood friends. So the, the professor, the older woman who's a professor, and she's very late in her life, she started to think about her three imaginary friends in her childhood. So she described the three imaginary friends to the Chinese woman and then asked her, did you have imaginary friends? And the Chinese woman said, what do you mean? You have to have space to have imaginary friends. I grew up sharing a bedroom and a bed with five siblings and my parents. Mm. I did not have space for imaginary friends. So that kind of humor. And they really entertained each other. They amused each other. But and yet there's that fact that how and two old women look at their childhood, it tells a lot of stories. Mm. Yes. So I so that's the kind of thing I like to write about. Yes, I and that, that idea that how how even as one approaches the end of life, there there's the kind of space for 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 the lightness of reflection and the randomness of reflection <laughs> or the randomness is very right, true yeah right it's not just heavy religious spiritual conversations about the nature of life but because that's not quite who we are as as humans no, right no yes yeah. you know in life i actually tell jokes all the time because i i just find life is funny you know y- yes yeah <laughs> another subject that, that I, I've heard you write about, and this takes mm-hmm. us into slightly different territory, and I, you, were, you presented this in an interview and other places, but you've talked to us about parenting, the nature of parenting, and how much that's changed over the years as well. That, that there used to be a much more kind of firm sense of how a parent was in years before. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yes, I, I, I think, you know, parenting, again, this, uh, interestingly, this book, mostly, Mm-hmm. Every in I wouldn't say every story is a sad story, but every story has a parenting story in mm-hmm. it. And I think partly, you know, we we have all been children. Not all people have been parents, but we have all been children. So yeah. we have experienced parenting stories from our youth. And then, of course, I have been a parent for many years. So I, I think about parenting all the time. And there's a... There is a sense that, you know, we are getting, I think parents worry much more now than before, right? In one story, you know, two, young, two middle-aged women like, it, <laughs> like my age, they uh-huh. were talking about parenting. And one of them said, you know, her mother's childhood, you know, of course, this was in China. And, and there were bold people. In the morning, there were eight children on the boat. And by, by the evening, one of them already dropped into the river and died. Mm. And yet life went on. So, right? So that's... But then she said at her age, the parenting is very much just... It's much more intimate and also much more worrisome. She worries about everything. She thinks about everything. So I, I think contemporary history, in a way, if you look at modern history... It's very much a modern history. It's very much about a history of parenting and how parenting has changed. Mm. Yes, interesting. And I mean, we do reflect on the past in such in such interesting ways. I mean, if you read, you know, any history. Let's for you know, I'm American, so I just would read early Mm. American history. But that how common it was, even earlier in Europe or anywhere. I'm sure in China too that that it would almost be normal to have lost a child at some yes. point in a yes. family. You know, a child was stillborn or, right. or you know, caught a disease at a very young age. And that, and that that was actually just the fabric and the norm of being alive at a certain time and how different it is now to even conceive of that, right? Absolutely. If you read literature, even from 50 years ago, yes. right, you yeah. see these things. Yeah, I, I think, you know... There's there there's something good about not having to live through those losses. On the other hand, I do think modern parenting makes it a very difficult task for all parents. Mm. Yeah, and you've talked about I mean just that the the benefits, of course, are that or for some it would be maybe the the recognition that as hard as one tries to do the right thing as a parent, right. but there will always be maybe here we can return to the garden again but just yes. the the incontrollable aspects of what you're up against 
Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right to return to the garden because I do think I did in one book about parenting. Um, it's, a, it's a book about losing a child, but at some point in that book, the mother said, you know, you can, you can hold, you can spend all your energy holding a child down, but the child may not put the roots down. Hmm. And that's exactly what happens in the garden. You can do all you can, but a garden or a plant or a tree, they have their own lives. And you, you really have to, you have to sort of accept at some point, that's all you can ac- live with as yeah. you, you're not in control. And if I might ask a personal question here, when we reflect on, you know, losing Vincent of suicide, how, how has it been for you to just accept what was in your control and out of your control? Because I'd imagine that's a question for a parent that could really, really stir them up in a lot of ways, right? Yes. And, and I, I, I think I would go back to that New Yorker piece. I, I mean, I, I, think, I think one question, as you said, that can wreck all parents is what if, you mm. know, and whether we are, you know, whether it's big, you know, subject as a child's death or even little things, you know, application to middle school, private school, you know, high mm-hmm. school. Like parents always ask the question, what if? Because what if we do that? What if we did that? What if we change that? You know, would life be different? And and I think in gardening and in parenting and in life, I, I, for my, I speak for myself. I don't ask the question, what if? because that question leads me nowhere. And the question I want to ask is, what now? Something already happened. You know, the frost already happened last night, or a child died. What now means, you know, where do do I go from here? I have to go from here to somewhere. So, So I think, you know, the personal question you asked for me, the answer is, I, I try to ask what now rather than what if. Mm. I think that's actually a very interesting and, and kind of astute way to put things. Like, and, it, and it's a reminder to me that there's something in the human brain which just likes to kind of ponder these unknowable scenarios, but they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't really always take us anywhere that is very useful, whereas right. what we have is the present moment and how we decide to act, right? I mean, that's, right. that's the only power essentially we have. That's exactly right. That's the only thing we have in control is not to ask that question, what if, but yeah. we ask it, what now? I, I know that you're not a, you know, a, a self-help guru that, that is, that's trying to... <laughs> no, never. <laughs> I know. That, that's trying to, you know, ex, explore or explain how one can, can live with loss. But I, but I do wonder... You know, as a as a person who is as thoughtful as you are and spend times writing, like what what would you tell other parents that have gone through something or that might go through the loss of a child? Like, is there any anything, even if it's not advice, but just thoughts that come to your mind about that process? Right. I think the thought. You know, I I, I think one must believe that there is another time. You know, as I said, these when you lose something, when you lost something so tremendous, the loss will always be there. But the the amount of time you sort of ponder over that loss, over the time, it does change. And I, I say this not because I am a guru, but I think right after we lost Vincent, a therapist said, you know, now you're spending 24-7 thinking about him. Maybe a year, she said, I want you to think about a year from now, you may be thinking about him, you know, 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day, but five years from now, you may be thinking about him five hours a day or one hour a day. So you will always be thinking about him, but it's the time you spend contemplating on that will change. I think that's actually quite, I remember when she said that, I thought, oh, that's a very good way to look at time. You need to think about time. And I, I totally agree with that. And yet I know that sometimes when that idea is presented to someone in grief, 
it can also be tinged with a bit of sadness because it almost feels like you're forgetting them. Right. But how can you forget them, right? Yes. <laughs> right. You never forget. So I do think, I think you live with the memory in a different way. Mm. Where do you feel your writing is moving towards now? Not that it ever needs to leave these big questions of grief, but I, I, I'm always interested in asking writers as they, as they move into different phases or ages or decades, like right. how, how do the questions that they ask change? How do the interests change than say when they were 20 years old? I, I, I wonder where you find yourself at now in the process of being a writer. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, as I said, I have written books about grief. I've written books about parenting. I've also written books about children, right? Because, you know, I was a child and my children have been children. So I've written, you know, subjects about different stages of life. I feel that now I'm moving towards, I want to write bigger project with every stage of life included. It's like that, you know, that... Shakespeare's saying in, in, in As You Like It, there are seven stages of life. I want all of them in my books. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And what do, you think, what do you think those stories or those questions sound like or the themes that you, you might be interested in writing about? What do, they, what, what do you think comes of them? I think it's just taking a longer look at life. Mm. Rather than, you know, you know, when you're experiencing grief, you're taking a very close look at life in a very close distance and you, you focus on one thing. But now I sort of want to sort of put myself in a distant way and say, I want to take a look at a bigger picture. Mm. And just curious, what what is your ritual these days look like? Do you still do you write every day? Do you read every day? How do you continue oh, I, to? Uh huh. Yes, I read yes. every day. I read yes. ten hours a day. Sometimes. You read ten hours a day. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I'm a very good reader, but I do try to write every day. I write every morning, you know, just to, again, that's 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 the shape of my day. I write in the morning. I read for the rest of the day. Yeah, and if I if I caught this right, and I love that you said this, the books you read every year. Are Tolstoy's War and Peace and Melville's Moby Dick, is that right? Oh yes, I reread those books every year. Yes. They also uphold my life. Mm. Uphold it. Yes. Yeah. Could you just say a few words about that? Well, I, I think there's a there's something to say about reading a book for twenty years. For instance, with War and Peace I read every year for twenty years and Moby Dick too. You your life is partly saved in those books and every reading indicates a different circumstances different life situation the books are the same books but you have been growing maturing changing so then i you know when i read i read with a pen so i underline things i i put things in the margin and in the end every year you go to the same book you are actually revisiting not only the book but your memory or your thoughts from you know past 20 years mm. so you see everything i do has something to do with how to make time make sense oh and i wonder when you you know you see what you've underlined before maybe there's a moment of like huh why did i underline that because maybe oh, yes. i i would have underlined this now over here or something like yes that, right? absolutely sometimes i would have a comment and now i would puzzle with the comments what did i mean that i did not think that way now or i do not think that way now i used to think that way yes it's it's a dialogue with your with your past self i wonder if there's just one last short reading. The final story is called All Will Be Well. And it's about a writer losing a child. It's, it's this is, you, you probably are familiar with this. This is a very Californian practice. During those years, while my children were in preschool, at the beginning of each semester, we were asked to send a care package that was to be kept at the school in case of a catastrophic earthquake. In the care package, we were to include a few non-perishable snacks, a family photo, a small stuffed animal, and a note to the children, telling them that if their parents could not make it to the school, there was nothing for them to worry about. 
Everything would be fine, the note was to say. Everything would be all right in the end. I had always prepared the snacks and the stuffed animals and the family photo, but I had never been able to write that note to my children. What could I say to them? If your teacher is reading this to you, it means that mommy and daddy are late picking you up. It may also mean that we will never come back for you, but all will be well in the end. We lived through their childhoods without being hit by a deadly earthquake. The care package will return to us when the children graduated from preschool. Still, if a writer cannot write a simple note as a parental duty, what meaning is there in the words she does write? A few days ago, I got an email from my former student who had vowed to dismantle my cannon. She said that she was traveling in South America. She mentioned a few things she had learned from our clashes. I remember that once you said to us, one must want to be great in order to be good. To this day, I still wonder why you looked sad when you said that. She wrote, Under what circumstances had I said that? And said about what? Had she written to enlighten me about what real life was, I would have applauded her consistency. Instead, in her long email, she talked about what I had taught her. I too had been young then. How could I have taught anyone anything? All will be well, all will be well, and every kind of thing shall be well. Yet I could not even write a lying note to console my children. Well, it's been such a wonderful pleasure to be joined by Eun Lee. Author most recently of Wednesday's Child, a collection of stories. Thank you so much for just spending this, this time with us. I really Thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. It's very important. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. I'm your host, Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us on Life Examined on KCRW. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you again next week. Take care. <laughs>